In partnership with Paizo, the No Direction Network welcomes you to our PaizoCon Online 2020 seminar coverage. While you enjoy your PaizoCon Online 2020 seminar recordings, remember that these were recorded online and some minor audio and connection issues are to be expected. All right, glad, glad you guys could be here. Glad we could finally get our electronics working a little bit. So uh, my name's Christian Coles, and this is Lauren Coles. And our handles are he's Mr. Boot, and I am one boot. So Yeah, so we got married, and I, I uh, adopted her uh, boot-oriented name. <laughs> and uh, we're going to be presenting methods for, fa for faster combat, and this is going to be methods that can be applied by players uh, GMs and both players and GMs. We've been gaming for a while now, and efficiency has always been important to me. So I've been documenting methods that I've discovered and seen other people use and have developed also things that I've developed myself to try and expedite combat. So I just wanted to give a quick shout out to Randall from no direction. He's going to be handling our recording, and uh, we're very appreciative of him for handling that for us. Yes, thank you. So the, the three main areas that we're going to be covering is methods that, are, that are, will mostly be done by players, methods that can be done by players and GMs, and methods that will mostly rely on the GM. And I, I'm more accustomed to giving presentations to professional audiences and in school settings. So I would highly recommend taking notes because this is probably going to feel a, a bit like a, a lecture. <laughs> uh, also, uh, when you take notes, it will help you remember the things that you like the best. And when you get to the point that you want to try implementing these things, I would recommend against trying to do all of them at once right off the bat. But try a few at a time. Figure out which ones work best for you and your group. If you have to adapt them some, that's fine. If you find that some of the methods just don't work well with your group, then go ahead and don't keep them. Uh, you use what works well for your group. And hopefully, uh, some of the ideas that we present will be helpful to you, um, even if they aren't, aren't all useful. And of course, adapt the methods to your needs. You know your group better than we do. So just adapt uh, and, and take these as you need them. And I'm going to hand things over to OneBoot to, to do most of the presentation for the player methods. Yeah, so I do have both GM and player experience, but since I have more experience as a player than I do as a GM, uh, I'll be talking about ways that you as a player can help combat go more quickly. So um, I'm going to talk about a few different things. I'm just going to list them here, and then I'm going to talk about them more in detail you know, as, as the slides go on. So we have some... Oh. Actually, there are not slides for all of these individuals. I'll have to talk about them all here. Oh, well, okay, then. I'll do that here. Um, so um, something that so these are some various things that we've added over the years that we've found have, have been very helpful. Um, one of those is giving every person at our table a job. Um, we've we found that that helps to you know keep everybody very engaged. It has it greatly reduced the amount of like you know people playing on their laptops or their phones because it's like okay I've got a job I need to pay attention. And one of our players 
who never really engaged very much. He was always very quiet as soon as we gave him a job. Like he was fully invested. He was he was all all in on it. And so um, some of the jobs that we've given our players are uh, condition trackers. So you can see on the whiteboard. Oh, wait, let me turn on the. Yes, we have a laser pointer. So um, we have a, a, just a small whiteboard here that we use to track various conditions during combat, whether that's buffs, debuffs, you know, if, if somebody's, um, you know, has some broken equipment, etc. So this is so that everybody can see what's going on and you don't have to constantly be asking the cleric, what does Bless do again? You know, because <laughs> that can slow things down. Um, so we just keep that propped up on one end of the table. Uh, and, and the condition tracker also helps make sure that things are being accounted for. So when you do an attack and you're adding and subtracting like 20 things, and you can't remember whether you accounted for things, the condition tracker uh, will help ideally help everybody remember that these are the three things that are in effect. So everybody uh, apply those on your turn. Yes. So um, another job that we have is as the combat assistant. So that's somebody that who helps to kind of manage the initiatives, may help to run some of the, no. Uh, the, the combat assistant uh, uh, often is given charge of a group of minor monsters. Oh, yeah, I was going to do that. Uh, so, like, if you just have some out-of-the-box goblins or skeletons and you want to spend sure. more time taking care of the major the major enemies, you can tell them, here, take care of these nine goblins. Mm-hmm. And uh, we gave that job to one of our younger players, and he loved it because his favorite part of gaming was the combat. And so, you know, the fact that he was able to do fighting stuff pretty much constantly, that was that, you know, that helped get him really invested. Um, so another job is uh, the historian. So that's the, the person that sort of keeps track of, you know, important. Now, th this is both helpful, both in and outside of combat, but they keep track of like important NPCs, you know, um, if there's any important information about enemies that, that you've gained, um, the person that uh, helps keep track of that. Person who remembers why we're in this quest. Uh... Yes, that's very important. Uh, so oftentimes I, as the GM, I'm also the historian, and my players have found it very, very useful when after the game, I send out a, an email with a summary of what happened in the game. This is helpful for them when, they, when we come back in a week or two so that they can all refresh rather than taking time at the table, rather than taking time from combat. They've all been able to quickly review what happened because a historian sent out a summary. And that can also be helpful for for you know players that were present as well to be like oh yeah that's right that's what happened. Okay. Uh, another job that may or may not be relevant to your table is uh, miniatures finder. So we have a lot of gaming miniatures, and so um, that's my job because um, we we both help to run the game. So you know my my husband will say okay I need you know eight goblins five orcs and a fire elemental and I'll say okay I'll get those ready before combat so that those are ready to go and we don't have to spend time shuffling through our multiple bins of, of miniatures looking for for what we need uh, next again um, music master may or may not be relevant to your table some tables like to get very immersive with their gaming experience and have sound effects and and lighting and and music and and stuff to create the mood um so having a player with a laptop ideally um to to help select you know thematically appropriate music can be very helpful 
Um, and it can also be fun if they want to really get into it to, you know, have some sound effects lined up. So when there's a, a critical hit, you hear this, this scream and a splattering noise and everybody's like, yay. So um, that's another job. Um, one that we found is actually very important is that of rules lawyer. I mean, that I know that that term can sometimes have a negative connotation, but we found that, you know, if you have more experienced players at your table, absolutely use them as as a resource, you know, rather than them constantly saying, well, you know, you could be doing this differently and this differently. It's like, okay, you know, how about you be in charge of when we have odd rules that we need to look up, I'll make you in charge of figuring out what the ruling is for that so that the GM can focus on, you know, running the show or, you know, making sure that everything is, is, is staying orchestrated. So that's something that we found is, is again, very, very useful. Um, and then the, last sort of major role that, that we've had for players is as treasurer. And, you know, while that, again, won't speed up combat within combat itself, it will help to speed up the game outside of combat so you can get more combat goodness in. So, you know, having one dedicated person be the treasurer, and we're going to get into a, that a little bit more faster ways to make, you know, giving treasure thing. And then, you know, as far as other, you know, you may have eight people in your group, which is fantastic and, and good on you for, for having a, a group that big. Uh, so you may need to come up with some, you know, some different jobs. Maybe you've got somebody that's, you know, just in charge of handling food or, you know, keeping the, you know, if, if you've got kids that, you know, are um, either at the table or have, have come with your players, maybe you've got somebody, you know, that, that's helping with that. So. Yeah, so you know your group better than we do. If there are other things that you realize that might be helpful for a player to take charge of, then go ahead and work with them and find somebody to help with that. And you don't have to use all every single one of these roles. We don't. But if you can find one or two jobs that everybody can help with, then it helps everyone to feel invested and keeps and uh, takes time off of you as the game master so that you can keep the story and the combat running faster. Okay, next slide. So another th thing that we've done that's helped speed up just the game in general, but especially combat, is each of our players has their own character folder. You can see an example here. So uh, what the what our folders all contain is the character sheet, obviously. Um, so you know it's just your standard character sheet, whatever kind of sheet you use. So that's always you know it's it's in one place. You don't have people digging around in their backpacks or oh they left it at home. Um, so, you know, all the pages are together. And next, we have a spell summary sheet. Um, oh, here we go. Here's an example right here. And this is, you know, as somebody who plays a spellcaster right now, this has been invaluable to me to have all of the spells that I use in one place. So I'm not constantly flipping through the book going, I don't remember what the range is for Fireball and, and the damage that my character does when I cast it. So that, that has helped speed things up immensely. And I haven't been able to find a spell summary sheet that I really like. So I just made up one of my own and I found that it's really useful. Uh, like I have these descriptions over here. If you can make a one to two sentence description uh, of your spells, then that really helps for remembering very quickly what it does. Uh, even if you don't have all the details, having down the most essential parts, because really with Fireball, all you care about is what's the radius, the damage, and the savings throw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ninety percent of of the spell descriptions will will are likely to not 
sorry, 90% of, of the spell description is not likely to come up in combat. So we found that, you know, stripping it down to, okay, what do we just need to know in combat? And then if things get weird, you can ask your rules lawyer, okay, could you look up rules for fireball and see, you know, exactly what the spell description says. Oh, or even better, if it's your spell, you should probably uh, look it up and know what it does. <laughs> yeah, if it's a custom spell. The, but but the, the rules lawyer might be good for uh, settling a, a dispute that should be easy to handle when the GM is trying to handle something else. Mm -hmm. Especially for bigger groups. Uh, next is a tactics sheet. And um, you can see it's, it's a little bit small here, but it says Sophie's tactics. Sophie is one of our non-player characters, and we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. So um, this is especially useful because so for, for our group, when a player is not present, you know, we, we keep all the character sheets here at our house. So then if the player isn't present, their character can still participate. And that can be important for story purposes. So having a tactic sheet of, okay, you know, in if there's a lot of enemies, then my character does you know, X, Y, and Z. Or if there's one single you know, big strong enemy, this is what my character does can be especially helpful. Also, it can be helpful for you running your character in combat because things can get chaotic and, you know, it really helps to minimize looking up all of, you know, the rules for all of your abilities, which we found that past about level five, your abilities start to really add up and they start to have some really, you know, finicky uh, details to them. So... Again, having a tactic sheet is very helpful for that. Yeah, and what we often do with the tactic sheet and encourage our players to do is write down the one or two or three maneuvers that it seems like they're doing almost all the time. If you're using a fighter, then pretty much the maneuver you're doing all the time is stand and make a full round of attack or charge an attack, um, assuming that you're a melee fighter. And you and just by writing down, here are all the numbers, all the modifiers, everything rolled into one for how I make a standing attack and a charge attack. Uh, that's really helpful, especially if somebody else needs to take over for you. I can also speed up combat a lot because rather than having to re-add up all the numbers from all your feats and abilities and everything every time, mm -hmm. uh, assuming that you're under normal conditions, those numbers will always be the same. Yeah, so you can just, you know, know that, okay, when I do a power, you know, a full round of power attack, it's going to be, you know, 3d6 plus, I don't know, 68. And you don't have to add up, okay, so I've got five from this and, and eight from this, and then I'm, I'm using this weapon, and it really, really can slow things down a lot. Uh, okay, so another thing we have is a reference sheet. And uh, the, uh, this is, or the reference sheet is one that Lauren likes to use. Uh, it, oh, it, that's right. <laughs> I forgot. So, um, so I've got, I, I actually play two characters. One is a, a melee character and another one is a spellcaster. My melee character has got some wacky abilities that, that he only pulls out in certain circumstances. So, you know, I've, I've got my, my tact, my tactics section, but I've also got a reference section that talks about, you know, that has listed out all of those weird abilities and all of the modifiers and the and you know sometimes little snippets of the relevant description so that I can quickly determine what situation is best to use this odd ability that that my character has. So I've I've found that I, I'm a really big um, proponent of having all of your information in one place and having it easy to access. Um, so another part that we have is adventuring notes. So you can see that we we've included some uh, binder paper in our our um, character folders. And so that's for players to make notes as, as they're going along. Maybe they got, 
you know, an unusual piece of equipment that you know, may be there for, for flavor text. For example, um, I forget what the situation was, but my one of my characters currently owns a golden boot. Just one. You know, it's just a it's just a flavor text sort of thing. And so, you know, rather than putting it on my main inventory, it's it's in my my adventuring notes. You can also write down again, you know, if you've had any interesting NPC interactions, uh, important pieces of dialogue. Let's say that, you know, part of your game is you're trying to solve a mystery. And so, you know, putting down, you know, clues that you've come across is, is again, very useful. Because, you know, having the historian is great, but they might not capture everything. Or, you know, your adventuring notes could be tailored much more to your specific character. Oh, and I've already mentioned, you know, keeping all the folders together because, you know, for when we first started uh, running games, you know, everybody would just take their character sheet home, but oftentimes people would forget to bring it or it would get something spilled on it. Or I don't think we've had a dog eat one yet, but, um, you know, just, just having all the folders together. And then, you know, sometimes people will still take them home to, you know, if they need to level or do some corrections. But yeah, we found that for the most part, keeping them, you know, at the, at the GM's, the GM's house has been very helpful. Yeah. And taking, taking your folder home to level up and buy equipment, that sort of thing, that's totally viable. Uh, that's, that's totally fine. We're not trying to monopolize characters, <laughs> but it does dramatically, pr dramatically reduce how often characters are forgotten. Yeah. And it, it's, it's a little difficult to, uh, to run combat when you don't have your, your character sheet in front of you. It's possible, but you'd be doing a lot of improv. All right, and uh, so now we're getting into like uh, the meat of actual combat itself. So something that that we've determined is, you know, what is our marching order? So you know, is is the rogue always in front, or is the fighter always in front? And so that can help to speed up combat because when you know initiative starts getting rolled, you don't have to determine, okay, so you know, where is everybody? you know, in this hallway, who is going to get attacked by what first? And so just having a, a standard marching order we found is very helpful for that. Um, combat formation. So our characters are now level nine. And so we have some abilities that are um, symbiotic with each other. So, um, you know, having a combat formation of, okay, you know, our, so you can see right here, th this is our, our tanky, character she's she's got crazy high ac and she gives bonuses to people around her you know if if they're uh within i think it's 30 feet no no uh she just has she's just real has really high armor class and hit points so i uh, we leave her up front as a wall oh i'm thinking of the uh the spear i'm thinking of yeah. alexander and, anyways, anyways. We, we don't need to go through every, everybody's build no we don't Sorry. But, uh, <laughs> a, a common problem we've noticed is that most people play pathfinder as a single player yeah mm -hmm. as a multiplayer player single player game so everybody is doing their own thing and they're not actually working with each other uh except maybe to help the rogue flank sometimes mm -hmm. uh and we we've found that uh when the players are up against a really tough fight where they know that they can't win under normal circumstances if they actually coordinate with each other and go in with a combat formation and a combat plan as we have briefly illustrated here they can win it makes a big big difference if the players all work with each other and come up with a combat plan that uses their strengths and not everybody's going to get a hundred percent of this their strength all the time but the 
symbiosis between working with each other more than makes up with it. And it makes combats go much faster because the players are much more effective. Yeah, and uh, this is something that, that us as the players kind of figured out on our own because we were facing 100 enemies. You know, having everybody be, you know, the single player, um, you know, just focusing on their character was not working at all. We were we were scattered and things weren't working. And so we, we were like, okay, wait, the person with the high armor class should be in front. And we've got a couple guys with spears, so they should be here. And we sort of figured out a strategy that that kept everybody alive and also helped us to take out enemies very, very effectively. And so we, we sort of figured that out on our own. We're like, oh, we should do this in the future. This really made things, I think that finally took, what was it, two, three hours? Yeah, it took, it took like three hours, but it was against 100 ogres, so that's not too bad. Yeah, so, I mean, we were able to get that done in, in just a few hours because we, you know, made things efficient. Um, another thing that's important is who is on watch. Um, you know, determining ahead of time who is on watch, if you've got a random encounter or a surprise attack, you already know who's going to be needing to roll for initiative. And, you know, whether there are any skill checks that need to be done, you already know who needs to do them. Uh, another thing that that Christian has implemented is determining, you know, who is on you know who is on average your your best and your worst at certain skills. So if you've got somebody who's really amazing at perception, maybe just having them, you know, roll the bulk of the perception checks. Or if you have somebody who's really terrible at stealth, you have them be the one that rolls the, the stealth check because, well, if they got you know noisy, clanky armor, then they're probably going to give the rest of the group away and, and trigger a, a combat. Yeah. Uh De de definitely. Uh, so overall, getting your group to work together to determine ahead of time uh, what's the order you're marching in, in case, when you get ambushed, what's the order you're going to go into combat with if it's in fa on favorable terms, and then who's going to stay awake to uh, deal with fights when you get attacked in the night, and who and keeping notes of who's the best and worst at things uh, so that you can quickly resolve uh, some skill roles and keep moving with uh, combat and the game. Mm -hmm. All right. So um, the way that that we run things is we have we we've moved because our fights have gotten very complicated. We've moved to having various parts of uh, information just on the table. For example, you can see that the goblins have an uh, armor class of sixteen. They've got six hit hit points and a reflex save plus two. You know, we we write little. Um, you know, note cards and, and put them on the table for everybody to see so that we aren't constantly having to ask the GM, what is the armor class of these goblins? What is the armor class of this wizard? And because we found that that was really slowing things down a lot. If we were, because he was the the only point of, of, of information, it was creating a bottleneck that, you know, when everybody's trying to determine things, because, you know, everyone's trying to figure out, you know, the, their, roles and you know whether they're going to cast this spell or that spell etc so and it also went the other way around where mm -hmm. in a big fight uh i would ask the fighter their armor class i remember it was like for the 12th time and she was getting upset at me <laughs> because she told me like 12 times before yeah i mean because he's he's got a lot that, that he's running and you know there's a lot of numbers flying around so yeah it's useful you can see here you know the various heroes their armor class their hit points their um combat maneuver defense yeah and, and you'll notice that we don't have all the information uh but we have the relevant information we have for for example reflex on the wizard and the goblins because i know that the wizard in the group likes to throw big explosive things <laughs> uh if her 
spells or require a saving star, it's probably going to be reflex. So I'm just going to give her that information. Yeah. So then she can already just, you know, so I can already let the GM know, okay, yep, my fireball hit, you know, this guy, this guy, and that guy. And this is how much damage each of them took, which brings me over to here. We, these are little magnetic uh, whiteboard strips that uh, you could, I think we bought them off Amazon. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. So, um, you know, we put, how many hit points they have. We cross that off as they take damage and write their new hit point total. And when we had our massive 100-point fight... Uh, actually, you, you usually track the damage that they take rather than their current... Oh, that's right. You, but you that do doesn't, it doesn't matter. Whether you like to count down yeah. or count up okay. doesn't matter. We're doing fine on time. It's okay. <laughs> so, um, yeah. And so, again, in our massive fight, we were having players individually resolving... Con you know the the minor conflicts and so you know being able to just report back okay you know this guy is you know this guy is dead and this guy's got like two hit points left that really freed up you know the the gm to make sure that everything is running smoothly and being able to see the the damage that enemies have taken also really helps your players coordinate when they're just looking at a bunch of miniatures they can't actually see how much damage has been dealt and they and it's oftentimes hard to remember where the damage has been dealt mm -hmm. but if you can see that somebody is that one guy has taken a lot of damage and the other guy has taken barely any then it helps inform where you should be directing your damage your healing those sorts of things. Yeah. So again, you don't have to constantly ask the GM. So how much damage has this guy taken? Because again, you know, the, the GM is a, it is a bottleneck of information. So as much as we can disseminate that, it, it speeds things up. I think that's it for this slide. Okay. So food is a big part of our games. You know, everybody chips in and uh, we found that, you know, pe people tend to be a lot more comfortable and relaxed when we've got food and our, our sessions can go anywhere from four to six hours, depending on, you know, if things are really intense. Um, so we bring snack kind of foods uh, for the most part. Occasionally we've, we've, you know, we've had a really long session. We'll take a break and, you know, someone will run and get pizza kind of a thing. So, um, and then that can be nice if you're like in between really intense fights, you know, having that, that breather to, you know, just kind of talk about strategy or, oh man, this was really cool. So then you're not, you know, feeling like you need to do that like during combat. Oh yes, an optional player job that we didn't list earlier is uh, make sure your GM gets food. It's important that their brain works uh, effectively. So that's, that's kind of my job is to make sure that, that Christian gets food because he's busy running things. And so, you know, he's he's very focused on, on being a good GM and not always on, you know, keeping himself, you know, fed and, and uh, you know, when your, your brain doesn't have food, it doesn't work very well. Yeah, we we both noticed that, and oftentimes players will notice it before I do, that if I'm really focused on running the game, then I don't even notice that I'm feel, feeling hungry. And also, the longer I go, especially if it's after a full day of school or a full day of work, my math skills begin degrading, my ability to make decent judgments begins degrading, everything starts slowing down for me. Uh, because I'm my blood sugar is getting low and the players can tell I'm slowing down. So to keep me moving quickly, somebody will usually fill up a plate of food, which I really appreciate. Yeah. Remind him occasionally to eat. <laughs> uh, but it, it is true that uh, the human brain runs on glucose. It runs on blood sugar. So we're not telling you to have a feast. You don't need to have a big Thanksgiving feast. But having enough snacks around to keep keep blood sugar at a reasonable level, we found is really helpful, actually. Plus, it tastes good. All right. Um, so 
we found that there are a couple different things that you can do with, you know, just the 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 props that you use and the the tools that you use that that have sped things up. So, um, what we've started doing is rolling multiple dice at once. So, you know, my my fighter gets three hits, and you know he rolls th this many you know, dice. So rather than rolling them individually, well, that's super fun. I mean, these are my dice. I love dice. I love rolling dice. But I found that, you know, rolling them all at the same time, and then I'll line up, okay, this D, you know, th this attack went with, you know, these two dice and, and so on. And I can quickly determine, okay, you know, I hit this guy, I did not hit this guy, and I, I did not hit this guy. And so then I can just ignore, you know, the, the attacks that didn't hit, and then just focus on the ones that did. And of course, you'll want to color code in real, and just remember that your purple is always your first attack, and your red is always the second attack, and the gold is always the third attack, or whatever. Yeah. Um, another thing we did is this is just a I can't remember where we got it. It's just a tiny little tape measure um, because you know if if you play on a, a grid, you know each square is one inch, and so we found that you know because figuring out diagonals can take a while sometimes. So we're like, okay, so you know. The, you know, this many squares diagonal is this many inches. So we just whoop, use the the uh, the tape measure to determine. You know, okay, so this is the you know extent of the fireball. The fireball, and so it can be very easy to to be like, okay, so who got caught in that fireball? We've also got some clear uh, spell templates that we use sometimes to sort of hold over the the table and be like, okay, let's see who got caught in it. Yeah, we I found that the tape measure. Uh, can be can speed up movement over unusual distances quite a bit, and you will occasionally occasionally run into minor math problems because uh, moving diagonally initially takes one movement, then two, then one, then two, and that's an approximation of how geometry works in reality. Uh, and so sometimes it will come into a minor conflict with a a tape measure, which acts absolutely according to reality <laughs> but we don't worry about that too much uh if we if it's a weird distance and it's faster to pull out the tape measure we'll just use that and whatever however far it says they can go that's how far they can go and we don't worry about whether there's a minor math difference between the official rules and the tape measurer mm -hmm. all right so that kind of wraps up the uh, the player side of things and now we're going to move over to the, the bulk of the presentation which is what can the gm do to speed things up yeah so what i found uh, as a gm is that preparing for combat with good notes is really important and oftentimes i'll make notes like uh i do in this box here uh, of saying, here's an encounter, here's what they're going to be fighting, uh, eight foot soldiers. And I will make uh, within my notes all of the changes that I need to make uh, to make this appropriate to what I need it to be. I'll record uh, the most essential features like armor class and hit points. And I'll also record what I plan on having that, uh, that thing do for the fight. That may need to change a little, but if I know that this is how I'm going to change from a regular foot soldier and what their stats are and that they're going to attack with their halberd with this damage and this crit range and that they have reach and that they're just going to do melee attacks. Then that, that very succinctly in my notes tells me pretty much everything that I need to remember about that encounter. Uh, 
So that can save a lot of time. It saves even more time for complicated encounters. Mm -hmm. um, if you're fighting something like an Oni that actually has a ton of abilities and movements and attacks that should be used in very specific ways, then you can put in your notes, Oni will turn invisible and then fly and then attack with the bo his bow from the air, uh, which actually makes them a real pain to deal with. <laughs> but that's a lot to remember when you're keeping track of 50 other things in combat. So having the notes is super important. Um, next is the treasure. Uh, after combat, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty common for characters to collect up whatever loot they, they, they can get. And rather than saying there are eight halberds and waiting for the treasure to write, write down eight halberds, and then saying, the, and there are eight daggers, waiting for the treasure to write down eight daggers, you can just say there are eight halberds and eight daggers and 24 javelins and, and everything on it, and then hand the card to the treasurer. So then they can record it while the GM is continuing to, you know, to explain, you know, the aftermath of the combat and, and whatnot. Yeah. So it, it, record, it, it helps uh, reduce the time at the end of combat. Uh, next, next is combat management. Uh, this is another big, big one, especially for big groups of combat. I mentioned that we did a combat with a hundred ogres. Uh, if I was going through uh, the hundred ogre initiatives and the player initiatives, that would just be too much to keep track of. We would still be doing that fight. <laughs> yeah, I, I found that it's much better to group enemies to say that we've got group one and two and three and so on. So there were like nine or 10 groups of ogres and each of them pretty much moved in a group and had their captain that commanded them and that group and that captain would all move together on the same turn and act pretty much simultaneously. A huge time saver, mm -hmm. uh, especially when you have groups of identical enemies. That is, I highly recommend that. You can also uh, use tokens. Tokens don't look as good as miniatures. I understand that. But uh, it, it can be another time saver. We, we used to use tokens more than we do now. But just being able to say that, all right, the uh, purple one through six, they're all identical. This helps you see over the battlefield. So if you ha have a long table or some other or uh, figurines that are all scrunched up close to each other, it can be hard to see exactly where uh, everything is, especially if there are people that are further from the t from the game mat than everyone else. And also, you know, let's say you've painted all your skeletons to look similar for aesthetic reasons, and now you've got players saying, uh, so I, I attack the skeleton that's in the corner there. And so everyone has to, you know, be, you have to, it, it, it can make things a little bit confusing. They look real, you know, they look a lot better, but, you know, for, for large scale combats, we, we tend to use the tokens a lot more frequently. Yeah, the tokens can also help you as a DM uh, if uh, if you're tracking the individual hit points of creatures rather than tracking on the table, mm -hmm. because now you can say that, okay, purple one took so much damage, uh, because it's easy when you have a lot of miniatures that look very similar as they move around to get them mixed up, uh, and this helps reduce that. Mm -hmm. And the last thing is to use combat management tools. Uh, here's just a Pathfinder combat pad. Um, it, it helps keep it helps uh, keep track of things in order. Uh, something else that, that uh, I haven't made a slide for, but uh, I thought of recently is if your players are all right with it, you may also want to consider moving around tokens in such a way as to group things better. Now you have to move them in ways that are fair. Uh, so if you 
increase one monster in the initiative order, you really need to decrease another monster in the initiative order. So you can imagine putting the moving the skeletons down and the zombies up so that they take in this take up this middle region here. Whoops. Uh, so now your skeletons and zombies can move at the same time. This is important if you have a combat assistant who can take care of one of those while you take care of the other. It also moves your heroes to have better grouping. So if you're effectively moving hero four up one, then heroes two, three, and four can uh, are all in the, are all in a, the same initiative block. They can move in any order, and it doesn't really matter because they're all kind of interchangeable. Hero five would be moved down, so it's now effectively in the same block as hero one. So hero one and five can move in any order, and it doesn't really matter that much. So it lets your players move faster together, and it lets your monsters move faster together. Uh, the more you can block heroes and monsters together, just make sure to do it in a way that is fair, uh, and make sure that your group is okay with it, because you may have somebody whose strategy really relies on definitely being the first person to go. So you don't want to keep knocking them down if it's going to mess up their entire character build or something. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, dice. Uh, th this maybe isn't a huge deal, but it is a little bit of a deal that I've found is rolling dice publicly. Uh, and I tend to make a pretty big mess on my boards because I'll, I'll grab my dice and just start rolling them. <laughs> and oftentimes I'll let, I'll, I'll have the stats for my monsters noted so the players can see what the monster's uh, uh, bonus to hit is and bonus damage. So I can roll down the dice in front of the players and let them figure out uh, just by what they've seen, how much uh, damage they take. Uh, it also helps if you roll a critical hit, because I feel bad when I roll a critical hit and kill characters. It's happened like three times now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but sometimes it happens. And when you roll publicly, then it's a lot easier to for people to realize there's no malice in it. It's just sometimes the dice are trying to kill you. Uh, but uh, rolling dice publicly is publicly uh, not only saves a little bit of time, but also so can save uh, some hurt feelings sometimes. Yeah. And, you know, again, different groups do it differently. For example, when I DM, you know, I, I will sometimes roll out in the open and sometimes I won't because occasionally I've, I've, I've fudged the results a little bit because my, when I, my play, my gaming style is, is a little bit more narrative driven. So. Yeah. And if, if you need a certain result or if you don't want a certain result, then go ahead and roll privately sometimes. You don't have to make every single uh, dice roll public. Uh, but that's something that most of mine are. Another thing that can help, especially for minor foes, is rather than rolling their dice, if if you know what their average damage is, then just have that be the damage that they do every single time. Really speeds things up when you've got a lot of com uh, enemies on the, the field. Yeah, and another thing you can do, especially with minor foes, is uh, eliminate them af after they've been hit once. Um, it's like the goblin has 10 hit points. Your fighter does, you know, 3d6 plus 20. If they hit, the goblin's not going to make it. So you could just be like, okay, I hit. All right, it's dead. We can move on. Yeah, so that that uh, is a, that, that can help uh, uh, scrub through the, the uh, minor enemies of a fight. I usually don't use that. But sometimes I do, and it definitely can help speed up the fight if you know that your players are pretty likely to defeat the minor enemies in one hit, then just say, okay, you defeat them in, in one hit. 
And it doesn't really matter whether they're dead or unconscious or surrender or retreat. Uh, they're, they're eliminated from the fight and they have dropped their loot. And that's really all that the players care about. <laughs> yeah, usually. Is it, it going to hit me anymore and is it going to drop anything? Yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the next things is how to resolve difficult rules. Because I think we've all been in a place as a D, as a game master where somebody says, I want to aim a cannon uh, to, to uh, shoot somebody across the moat, across the wall, and onto the balcony of a tower. And uh, after I aim it, I'm going to light the fuse and then run around and crawl in. So what do I need to roll to do that? And uh, that, that is something that would certainly give me difficulty. Uh, so I'm just going to use that as an example of a difficult rule. The advice I get, uh, I, I have for when you're faced with a difficult rule is do not start combing through the books trying to figure out how to do this difficult thing. Uh, if you know where the, the where it says it in the book and you can resolve it quickly, then that's probably fine. If you have a rules lawyer, then this would be a great thing to ask them if they can figure it out. Uh, but for the most part, if it's something that I'm pretty sure none of us are going to be able to figure out, then it's best for me to admit my ignorance, admit that I don't know where the rules are for shooting a halfling uh, over a battlefield in a cannon to reach the balcony of a castle, <laughs> uh, and just agree with the group that you're going to use your best judgment uh, according to your knowledge of the rules to try and make a, a fair judgment on how to resolve this and, and be a good sport about it and say, I'll try and figure out what the actual result is later. But if you want to do this, we're just going to have to rely on my best judgment. Mm -hmm. And most of the time players are just happy, are happy with that. Uh, another situation. So just saying, using that rather than combing through the rules, uh, because it, it can become an endless time sink trying to look through the books to figure out difficult rules. Uh, another thing is if you have a player that is not new, now if this is their first time playing, you should probably play softball with them. Don't be real hard. But uh, if a player wants to do an ability and they don't know how to do it, then oftentimes I put the weight on them. If they want to do turn undead using the D&D third &D edition rules, which uh, is difficult to figure out, or uh, the grapple rules from almost any edition of D20, uh, then that, that's a time where I would probably say, all right, you can do that. Figure it out. And once you figure out how to do it, then you can do it. Until then, we just need to keep going. Mm -hmm. uh, and that will either discourage them from doing something that they have no idea how to do, or if they really want to do it, they'll figure out how to do it. Uh, and again, go easy on players that this is that they're still new to it and they don't really understand the mechanics for their abilities. But for the most part, players should understand the mechanics of their abilities. And it's totally fair for you to put the weight on them to say you can use this when you figure out how to do it. You know, and again, you know, you know your group better than we do. So you may have players that you, you know, you'll, you'll always need to assist them with rules and that's totally fine. Yeah, but uh, as for me, for players that have experience and are competent, I consider it to be insulting to me and to the group. I consider it to be very disrespectful if they're trying to, if they're wasting everybody's time uh, trying to do something, something weird. 
Uh, so I don't have a lot of tolerance to that. That's why I put the weight on them that they need to figure out how to do their own ability. And until they figure out how to do it, they can't do it. Okay, redirecting players. Uh, we all, we've, I'm sure that we've all had times where our players have stopped making progress, either because of side conversations or because they're spending two hours debating the best way to open a door or whatever. <laughs> but what I've found to be very effective to get players back on track uh, is to say, what do you do? Now, you're not forcing them to do anything. But uh, just that phrase alone saying, what do you do, is very good at redirecting them back to the situation. And almost always, they will actually take some kind of meaningful action after that. It, it helps to kind of re remind, you know, because I've been in that situation myself, because, you know, you're, it's, it's a very social environment and you want to, you know, chat about things. You know, it, it's a very useful to redirect. Oh, yes, that's right. We're playing Pathfinder. <laughs> We're right in the middle of a, of a combat and things are trying to eat us. We should probably uh, get back to that. Yeah, so that, that can be useful uh, in combat and especially out of combat for keeping things moving quickly when progress has stopped or, mm -hmm. or is greatly slowed. Mm -hmm. uh, next, cinematics. You don't have to play through every fight. You can, but it, sometimes it's faster to not do it. Uh, it may be faster to just describe some fights. Uh, using cinematic details. Uh, don't do that all the time. Uh, I use it pretty sparingly, but sometimes that's best. Uh, and it should be use, used most often to eliminate non-challenging fights. So if it's a fight that poses no serious threat to the players, then it, that's one that's, uh, that's viable for, for a cinematic fight. This may be fights between NPCs. If there's an N NPC that they players really care about. I'm not saying that the characters care about it, but if the people at the table really care about this NPC, then they probably want to know how the fight goes. Uh, and if it's somebody they just don't care about, then saying that these two guys duel and one of them wins may be as much as you need. Uh, cinematic fights can also help you cheat a little. It can help you ensure a desired outcome. Uh, as long as the, the players are convinced that the cinematic fight came out in a way favorable to them, they usually won't uh, won't argue with it, with it. And you can still sneak in the thing that you need to happen. You can say that the players uh, form a spy network and they work with the city guards, that they raid the, the bandits and catch nearly all of them in one fell swoop with, uh, without, uh, with only minor injuries inflicted to them and the guards. Most players are totally happy with that. They have won, and you have also established that they have captured nearly all of the criminals, which means if you escaped, you just don't emphasize that. Uh, so now you've established that the players have beaten the criminals and that a few criminals escaped, and, it, and that may be important for your story, and now you have ensured that it's happened, uh, and you have not needed to go through a tedious fight. Yep, two hours later. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the complexity of your cinematics should probably be proportional to how important it is to the story and to the players. If the players don't really care about the people involved and it doesn't affect the story much, then you can use a very quick cinematic. Uh, if you're just trying to convey some very simple information, then you don't need a detailed cinematic. You can say that as the players travel across the countryside, that there are some farms that are destroyed and that uh, minor demons... Uh, have taken up residence in, a, in some of these and that the players easily dispatch them. 
that's fine because you have conveyed all of the information, which is that minor demons are causing trouble. And that's that's the message that you need to convey. And you don't need to go through several small, tedious fights to do that. Mm-hmm. Also, it can make your players feel really awesome. It's like, yeah, we took out all those guys and, and we're awesome. Yeah. Uh, and then the, the last thing is for, for cinematics, try and really try and do it in the theater of the mind. Don't say that this person hit that person for so much damage and that this person's armor class is such and such. Uh, instead, I would, I would really suggest trying to picture it as a movie. Tell them what your actors are doing in the movie. Tell them what the camera is doing. Tell them the looks on faces and really try and uh, go and, and paint paint a picture in the mind of what's happening. And that will be much, much better than just giving them numbers. Yeah. And, and we picked up on that, that particular tip. We were watching a, um, a, a celebrity gaming panel at PaizoCon actually that was being run by an actor. And that was how he did most of, of the, the combats was he described it. You know, he, he, you know, yeah, there was some dice rolling, but it was mostly, okay, and then this happens, and this guy charges, and he's all, ah, and, and you, uh, okay, so you swing your sword. All right, so then so then you hit him, and so then this happens, and, and it made it, it really made things a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, another thing that can be important, uh, this won't help you in the fight, but it will help you get through the story faster by eliminating useless fights. There are fights that are useless. In my game, I don't have random encounters. Every encounter is intentional and meaningful. Uh, here, I have uh, the encounters that you might fight going through some quest. Initially, you fight some zombies, then some, some more zombies, then some giant ladybugs, uh, then, th- then some ghosts and some zombies and skeletons, and then a fire elemental, and then some stronger ghosts and some more zombies and skeletons, and then a time-traveling alien. And then some kind of flesh golem and finally a necromancer and some more skeletons. Some of these encounters don't fit with the others. Make sure that you're the, all of these are somehow progressing the story, except for the ladybug, the ladybugs and the fire elemental and the time traveling alien. Uh, if they don't meaningfully per- progress the story in any kind of way, then take them out or replace them with something that does progress the story. You know, again, some groups, you know, the, you know, their gaming experience is focused more on combat, in which case, you know, leave the random encounters in. Our games tend to be a lot more uh, story oriented. And so, yeah, all of our fights have a, have a reason for being in there for story purposes. Yeah. Uh, so, so make sure that, uh, especially if, if you're uh, doing a homebrew and you're building your own story, try to make sure that everything is relevant to the story somehow. Not every fight needs to have a key piece of information, uh, but if I just replace those weird encounters with more skeletons or zombies or ghosts, then it at least makes sense. Uh, And it further establishes that this is an undead heavy area and there's some kind of undead sort of problem going on. Or I could replace them with cultists or something else that meaningfully flows with the story. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll keep going rather than repeat myself a third or fourth time. <laughs> okay, uh, this is this is our last thing that we want to deal with. And even though this doesn't involve combat a lot, it does involve gameplay and how to speed it up. Dealing with bad behavior uh, is not only... Uh, really discouraging for players and DMs, but it can also take a lot of time. Yes. 
uh, the best advice that I've found, which I think is also done by a lot of the Pathfinder Society groups, is to veto bad behavior. Uh, when players say that they want to rob another player, attack another player, rob an innocent NPC. Unless you're in an evil campaign. <laughs> unless you're in an evil campaign, uh, perhaps. But uh, when those sorts of problems arise, I find that there is a right way to act and a wrong way to act. The wrong way to act, so don't do this, is to say that, oh, well, you shouldn't do that because of some reason, such as you can't, you shouldn't do that because the guards will be upset. You shouldn't do that because the clerics will be upset or something like that. Because when you say that, what you're trying to say is don't do that. Boy, you're really saying is it's fine for you to do that, just not under this very specific set of circumstances. Uh, so you're subtly sending a message, even though it's probably unintended, that if they're just more careful about controlling the circumstances in the future, then they can totally do this and it's fine. And in most cases, that is what they will do. They will keep trying to do it most of the time, not everybody, uh, until they can finally meet your criteria. And you con constantly need to come up with new criteria as to why this specific situation won't work either. Instead, it's much better to say, I'm not going to let you do that. Uh, we're running a heroic campaign where you guys are saving people from bad stuff, not doing bad stuff. And that sort of behavior just isn't really appropriate in this game. Uh, so I'm not going to let you do it. Uh, and in most cases, players are totally, at least in my experience, players are typically just fine with that. Uh, people need boundaries. They need to know what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. And telling them in plain terms that what, they, that what this is is not acceptable. So you're just not going to let them do it. Uh, 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 quickly keeps things on a good path. Yeah, because it, what you're doing is is you're addressing the player and not the character. Because we've we've tried various things in the past, you know, using in-game uh, real consequences to to help encourage, you know, help to help discourage, um, you know, behaviors that that were were causing problems with the group. And we were finding that using character solutions to address a player it problem it wasn't working. And so we, we realized that we had to, you know, talk to the player directly about, you know, this is the type of campaign that, that we're running. And, you know, we, we would love to have you you stay, but this may not be, you know, the, the type of game that you enjoy most. I mean, I've got, we've got a friend that she, she runs and she's in an evil campaign with a bunch of people and they, they run around and kill everybody and light things on fire and they have a great old time. You know, that's the kind of campaign that they enjoy doing. You know, we enjoy running different campaigns. So, yeah, and if this is a, a problem, you can discuss with your players about the social contract. And there are many books, many forum pages, many everything written about the social contract and how that might be interpreted by you and your group. But uh, even talking to them briefly and explaining that. Uh, you, as the game master, are agreeing to certain things, such as to prepare a game, to prepare a story, to prepare encounters, and that you need the players to agree to uh, cooperate, follow the general story, um, communicate with each other. Communicate with each other. Then that can be your social contract. Uh, you have agreed to present a story, and you would really like them to agree to follow the story. And killing the king is definitely not going to follow the story. 
And so, you know, th this is something that, that we've looked into quite a bit, you know, the social contract. And, you know, for the most part, it's it's an unconscious thing. You know, we agree that we're going to all get together and we're going to play Pathfinder. So um, something that can help if you have a player that, that's, that's struggling with this is perhaps sitting down with, you know, with that player or with the whole group and saying, okay, you know, why, why, are, why are we gaming? You know, what, what are the things that we agree to in order to make a game happen? You know, what do... Um, something that we found helps is, you know, asking each of the players, what do you enjoy about the game? Um, you know, and, and what, what, what do you feel is, is, is a problem in the game? Because, you know, players will see things that the GM can't sometimes, you know, we've had instances where, where, you know, we've got a, a fairly large, we've had fairly large groups at times. And so there can be an issue down at the far end of the table that, that Christian just won't see. And so, you know, occasionally touching base with, with your players and just making sure that they're still enjoying things and whether they see any issues can can really help to smooth things out. Because at the end of the day, we want everybody to have fun. We want the players to have fun. We want the GM to have fun because we, we've been in games that get to the point where nobody's having fun. So why are we still gaming? Yeah. No Direction Network's PaizoCon Online 2020 seminar coverage was made possible by the KDCon team, consisting of Jefferson J. Thacker, also known as Param, Ryan Costello, Alexander Agunas, Vanessa Hoskins, Randall Meyer, Dustin Knight, and John Godek. Special thanks to Paizo's social media producer Peyton Smith and the entire Paizo staff. For more great Pathfinder, Starfinder, and other RPG news, reviews, interviews, podcasts, and blogs, check out NoDirectionPodcast.com. <laughs>